second day of our discussion of the Sermon on the Mount, and we will begin today with the 13th verse. Maybe I should repeat myself. We'll begin today with the 13th verse of the 5th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And we will read the 13th to the 16th verses. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath, have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. <clears throat> now Jesus here is speaking uh, a parable, as he so often does. <clears throat> in fact, so much of, particularly this Sermon on the Mount, is spoken, uh, uh, let's say, he uses parables, metaphors, uh, analogies, uh, and uh, there was a reason for that, as we know. Uh, it was that some uh, hearing would understand, but others of no understanding would not know what he was talking about, words to that effect. And... Uh, <clears throat> He's first speaking of salt in that 13th verse. Salt is good, and I'm quoting from the diagram now, now, but if salt becomes tasteless, how will you restore its saltness? And then he says, have salt in yourselves. That, by the way, is from Mark 9, 9th chapter, 50th verse. This is a different occasion. But again, we notice, as we mentioned yesterday, how oftentimes the master and the apostles and others uh, use the same theme on different occasions. Now, salt is valuable for several reasons. In fact, salt in ancient times was often used in place of money. And wars have been fought over the possession of salt. We uh, use salt at our tables and sprinkle it on without much thought to it because it tastes good. And this is, of course, what Jesus is emphasizing here, the, how salt gives savor to our foods. But there's more to that than just its savor. Salt is essential to human life. Salt mixes with stomach acids to ensure proper digestion. It has therapeutic value. It's used for sore throats and body sores. Salt is necessary to help carry away body waste. Now, those unfortunate people who, for some reason or other, can't use salt, uh, <clears throat> perhaps might question its value. 
Uh, but the reason some people cannot eat salt is because, not because of there's anything wrong with the salt, but there's something uh, wrong with their bodies where some of the body organ, organs do not function properly, and uh, which causes excessive salt retention in the system, resulting in danger to some of the vital organs. So we repeat, salt is valuable and essential to human life. Salt is a preservative. Uh, you use it in the preservation of food to prevent spoilage and deterioration. And as we've already mentioned, and which uh, Jesus emphasizes, is salt is savory. It adds flavor. It adds relish. Maybe we can use the word zest. It adds zest uh, to your food. We all know that. Did you ever eat an egg without salt in it? I don't know how you feel about it, but uh, it'd be very unpalatable to me. And that's true of many other foods. They would have no savor if they didn't have salt. They'd become tasteless and flat, unpalatable. Now, the uh, analogy in respect to salt and its value is generally recognized uh, by the expression, he is or he is not the salt of the earth. He is the salt of the earth, meaning he's a very valuable, uh, admirable person. And as long as the servant of the Lord remains faithful to the trust that the Lord has placed in him, he is uh, so regarded by the Lord. He is regarded by the deity as uh, being savory in the Lord's sight. He is a creature of enthusiasm and of zeal. He is a healer. We mentioned the healing properties of salt. The servant of the Lord is a healer. Uh, he speaks and proclaims the saving truth. He is a preservative in the sense that he preserves the truth in its purity, that is, pres preserves it from corruption. But, as Jesus said, if salt loses its savor, it becomes valueless. Gone is the savor in the disciple of the Lord, or God's servant. If, when he loses his zest, <clears throat> when he loses his enthusiasm, and we have unfortunately sometimes seen this happen, one maybe who was strong and ardent in the faith, but <clears throat> lacks spiritual stamina. He grows spiritually feeble. Maybe I'm mixing up my metaphors. Uh, becomes half-hearted and lackadaisical. This is when the servant of the Lord loses, as salt, loses his savor. And such, unfortunately, uh, are good for nothing, they are cast out and trodden underfoot. Now, the next three verses that we've already read, 14, 15, and 16, must be taken in conjunction with this 13th verse. They are an extension, really, of the uh, thought that the servant of the Lord must be continually active in the Lord's vineyard. Zealous. 
wholehearted, ardent. There's so many adjectives that we could use to describe his service. They must be as light in a world of darkness. Jesus declared on another occasion, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now his followers, enlightened by his teachings, are declared to be lesser luminaries. And this thought is expressed by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, 8. Ye, as Ephesian brethren, were sometimes darkness. And to the Philippians, Philippians 2.15, he says, Among whom ye shine as the light of the world in a crooked and perverse generation. In other words, Jesus is the light and was so expressed as the light of the world. <clears throat> but those who follow him, his disciples, his brethren and sisters of Christ, they absorb some of that light. Unfortunately, we cannot absorb all of it. But we absorb some of that light, and hopefully we let it shine. So let your light be shine. Uh, let your light shine, for it makes no sense to have a light and uh, then hide it under a basket or a bucket or a bushel, all synonymous terms. Uh, <clears throat> When we do that, or when we take literally a lamp or candle and uh, cover it over with a uh, bucket or something of the sort, uh, we might just well not have one. Uh, a candle is not placed under a bucket or a bushel basket. It's placed in a candlestick. Uh, its purpose is to sh shine and to give light, to disperse the darkness to lighten up the surroundings. And so Jesus is uh, saying to the disciples, to all his disciples, not only those he was addressing at the time, but disciples of all ages, you should stand out from your surroundings. You should be as a city situated on a hill which stands out from its surroundings. And we heard the other day of the day to come, the day when uh, uh, Jerusalem and Mount Zion shall be glorified and how Mount Zion shall have the ascendant spot in the geographical area in and around Jerusalem. This is the same thought. Our light should stand out to, eliminate, uh, to illuminate the surrounding darkness. The disciple of Christ should stand out from his surroundings, from his uh, fellow man, and not literally uh, in the ascendancy, but by his thoughts and actions and speech, he may uh, be higher spiritually than his fellow man, and this, this should be noted. If our fellow man, men see nothing different in us than his other fellows, we are not letting our light shine. We are, in effect, denying Christ. We should stand out as differing from our contemporaries. And the message really is basically this. Use the God-given light you have. Do not hide it.
He told his disciples, you remember, just before he ascended into heaven, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And the apostle Paul similarly told Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all suffering and doctrine. Just to repeat and to emphasize, the disciple of Christ will stand out as being different from his contemporaries if he lets, as he should, let his life shine. Now we will discuss the 17th to the 20th verses. Think now that I am, think not that I am come to destroy the law, the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> you know, Jesus was accused, particularly by the scribes and Pharisees, of teaching a new religion. Uh, <clears throat> of course, he wasn't. The religion he taught was taught and preached centuries before, particularly when the great and precious promises were given to the fathers. But they thought he was uh, uh, teaching a new religion, principally because they did not understand the types and the shadows of the law of Moses, nor did they know, or if they knew, perhaps did not understand the predictions of the prophets in regard to himself. We're thinking particularly of that 53rd chapter of Isaiah, which describes in so much detail the sacrifice of Christ. The Jews as a whole did not understand this, even though the law was a schoolmaster which was uh, invoked to bring them unto Christ. And in addition, the scribes and the Pharisees had corrupted the law, and they had made the commandments of none effect by their traditions. <clears throat> Jesus fulfilled the law which required the death of a lamb without spot and without blemish the one great offering, by which he perfected forever them that are sanctified, as recorded in Hebrews 10, 14. But verse 18 presents some difficulties. And I'd like to quote from the Phillips translation, verse 18. I assure you that while heaven and earth last, the law will not lose a single dot or comma until its purpose is complete. Now, you see, we get a different idea uh, or different thought here than from the authorized version. The authorized version would indicate that everything regarding the law came to an end with, with Christ's offering. But this gives a little different idea or thought. <clears throat> There's a great deal in the typology of the law that extends beyond the literal fulfillment 
in respect to the death of Christ. And Brother Roberts in Nazareth, he's visited, page 86, expresses it this way, which I like very much. Complete fulfillment awaits his second coming when, as, regarded, as recorded in Revelations 10.7, the mystery of God shall be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Let me repeat that. Complete fulfillment awaits the, his second coming when the mystery of God shall be finished as he hath declared to his servants and prophets. So I suggest here that Jesus is not so much speaking of the details of the law, which to be fulfilled, but rather the principles, the principles of the law of Moses embodied therein. And he is saying that those who break or relax, perhaps is a better word, relax the force of those principles enunciated in the law, their standing in the kingdom will suffer accordingly while those who adhere to the principles shall be great in the kingdom. Here is a differentiation. Apparently, there is a, a latitude here uh, as to how uh, much one follows the principles of the law of Moses, even in the Christian era, and those who adhere more closely to those principles will uh, be greater in the kingdom than those who perhaps relax some of those principles. And the final thought in these first few verses is that one's righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. We don't know by what yardstick we will be judged when Christ returns, but there's one thing certain, as Jesus states, that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees of his days, uh, otherwise we will not uh, be in the kingdom. Verses 21 and 22. Ye have heard it said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whoever shall kill shall be in danger, I'm, shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire, or death, destruction. <clears throat> First, Jesus is speaking of that law, of, from the law of Moses, that provides judgment on one who says to another, uh, or one, rather, who slays another, the law provided that they would be repaid in kind or degree, a matter of vengeance and revenge, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth principle. But by contrast, in verse 22, in reference to the new law, that is, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, this has to do with the heart and the spirit of man. In effect, Jesus is saying, even to be angry, even to be angry with another, demonstrates a wrong attitude and a state of mind. Now, while anger may seem to us a small thing 
compared to the killing of another. There seems a great difference between the two. Uh, yet, nevertheless, one who is guilty of anger is, uh, is also in danger of uh, judgment. He is subject to judgment for his anger. You'll note that the uh, words without cause, I think the margin uh, has something to say about it. That in some cases, it's uh, uh, omitted. I know it's omitted in the uh, re uh, Revised Standard Version and in the Diagot. That is, uh, you don't have to have a cause to be angry. Let's, let's look at that again. Uh, The 22nd verse, I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother, and this is the clause I'm speaking out, without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, neither the Diaglot or the Revised Standard Version uh, has that clause in it. It's omitted. The clause without cause is omitted from the Revised Standard and the Diaglot. I don't know the reason for it. I didn't, uh, I probably should have done uh attempted to find out why, but it is probably uh, an interp interpolation. It probably did not appear in some of the earlier manuscripts. I'm sure you all know that we don't have any original manuscripts uh, of the scriptures. If my memory serves me correct, the earliest manuscripts uh, available are around the third century uh, A.D. Well, then Jesus goes on to warn against calling names. And, you know, this is a very, very common way uh, for man to vent one's uh, feelings, to vent one's anger. But uh, there's danger in this. It's forbidden. Jesus forbids it uh, indirectly. He says, one who stoops to the use of the epithet of Raka is subject to the council or the Sanhedrin. Now, Raka means empty head. Now, we don't use that term, but how often have you heard the equivalent term, uh, oh, he's got holes in his head. It's much the same thing. So he is subject, such a one is subject to the council or the Sanhedrin. But he who calls his brother fool is in danger of capital punishment. His, that is, his body is thrown out uh, to be burned. Well, now that is very uh, uh, terrible judgment for one who simply uh, calls another one a fool. This is uh, what is termed hyperbole and an intentional exaggeration for emphasis, for effect. And it's used, as we'll find out, uh, I think in the seventh chapter, we'll find another excellent evidence, uh, example of hyperbole, of intentional exaggeration to stress a point, that is to emphasize a point. And it's very common in our language today uh, we all use it. Maybe we 
use it to excess. Maybe we use it without thinking sometimes. Like the mother says to her child, I've told you a thousand times not to track mud into this kitchen. Well, did she really say that a thousand times? If she did it once a day, it would take almost three years to run a thousand times. Did she say it 500 times? Probably not. A hundred times, maybe, but more likely it perhaps was 25 or 30 times that she's told her son not to track dirt into her kitchen. Now, we don't think this is a peculiarity or a habit of mothers only. Uh, it's true of all of us, including husbands and wives. You never put out the solar light or you always drop your napkin. Or, uh, you can think of, I can anyway, uh, many such exaggerations or hyperbole as we call them. But perhaps we uh, shouldn't get into that too deeply, but I'm sure you all appreciate uh, this and I'm sure probably all of you on some occasion commit hyperbole and maybe not always with a good reason. Uh, <clears throat> coming back to this matter of epithets or name-calling, uh, this is a hard saying. Uh, I certainly uh, am prone, maybe I don't actually call names, but there's many times in my life when I've wanted to, and I think if we're all honest ourselves, perhaps we'd all feel the same way. L let's give an example. One that arouses my, I hate to say it, anger, but it does, is uh, some of the crazy drivers we have of automobiles. Uh, I don't claim to be the best driver in the world, but I think there's a lot that are worse than I am, and he pulls out of the curb in front of me. And what do I say? Well, if I follow the laws of Christ, I won't say a word. If I follow the laws of Christ, I won't even think uh, an epithet. I won't even be angry, and this is very, very difficult. How many of us, perhaps, under those circumstances I mentioned, how many have uh, stuck our head out a car window and hollered at the other driver, stupid? Uh, who gave you a license to drive a car? Uh, dumbbell? Oh, this. Of course, a lot worse epithets, I, I admit. But uh, are you, am I uh, an exception? Am I the only one that wants to say these things? Don't you people want to say these things sometimes? I hope I'm not alone in this. But, of course, what we're taught is to refrain, not even to be angry, to say, well, poor ignorant man, how, for how fortunate I am, and no, I'm serious now, how fortunate I am that I have the benefit of the laws of God and of Christ which prevent me, or at least tend to prevent me, from committing sin. That's really what it amounts to. Uh, <clears throat> admittedly, uh, under certain circumstances, they would seem justifiable. And as you know and I know, it's not always easy to follow the dictates and the commandments of Christ. But when we resort to name-calling, 
What good does it do? Uh, do we make a friend of this driver? We're using that example. Is he going to come over to us and say, oh, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Uh, I'll try to do better next time. He doesn't say that. Oh, he just hurls some names back at you. And uh, the best thing you can do is get out of there fast because it might develop into something even worse than name-calling. So name-calling accomplishes nothing. Uh, and it's not the f way to make friends or influence people, which is one of the duties and responsibilities we have as disciples of Christ and preachers of the truth. <clears throat> no, uh, name-calling provokes retaliation and violence and hatred, whereas, as the scriptures say, a soft answer turneth away wrath. Solomon in Ecclesiastical 7.10 says, Be not hasty in the spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. So here Solomon is equating anger with fools or foolish persons. Anger indicates hatred. Now, if we get angry with somebody, it doesn't mean that we hate them. I would certainly hope not. But it oftentimes indicates a, a feeling of uh, dislike which can grow into anger. And it certainly indicates an absence of love, that divine love of which we heard some uh, of this morning by our brother Wood. Jesus is not condemning the use of such epithets themselves. He is condemning the state of mind that resorts to the hurling of epithets. As I said, it indicates an absence of love. And we'll have more to say on that subject of love later on as it comes up in the last part of this chapter. Verses 23 and 4 of the fifth chapter of Matthew. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Now, uh, here, Jesus is speaking of Sorry. Jesus is uh, referring here to uh, brethren, anger with our brother, whereas previously we've been talking about anger in general. He's not speaking of name-calling necessarily, but of anger in any of its manifestations. For anger destroys the mutual love that should exist between brethren. Therefore, if we remember or realize our brother has ought against us, regardless of where the fault was, before we bring our gift to the altar, we must first be reconciled to him. Now, what does this mean? We have no altar in the literal sense. The altar where the slain animals were offered up. But Christ is our altar, as recorded in Hebrews, the 13th chapter, the 10th verse. 
where we make spiritual offering at the memorial service. And I take this, these two verses to mean this, that one must, if one have ought against another, it's in line with the 18th chapter of, I believe it's the 18th chapter of Matthew, the law of offenses. If one have ought against thee, or if you have ought against him, we must make peace with that brother before we partake of the Lord's Supper. We cannot partake of the Lord's Supper with a feeling of anger or frustration or malice, uh, any of those feelings, uh, as long as we are separated in our minds, as long as we are at odds with our brother. We must first make peace with our brother. We must come to an accord with him. And uh, regardless, as I said, of where the fault lies, we must make every effort to uh, bring about a uh, condition of rapport. <clears throat> and I think this. Otherwise, if we do not make this attempt, if we do not do this, we are uh, unworthy of partaking of the uh, body and blood of the Lord as symbolized in the bread and the wine, as noted in 1 Corinthians 11, 27. Now, verses 25 and 26. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the utmost farthing. Now, I believe, and uh, others have the same idea here, that this has reference to litigation in the courts of law, where someone might have reason or think they have reason to sue the believer. <clears throat> First of all, uh, not to be confused, this is not to be confused with the example of a believer taking another believer to, to court, as uh, mentioned in 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter. This is where an unbeliever uh, thinks he has a case and he's going to squeeze every last bit uh, out of you, uh, if he can, in the court of law. And what you do? I think this is a very, I think this is one of those, perhaps one of those ex examples that Brother Parker spoke about in the gray areas. Are we permitted, if someone should sue us at law, are we permitted to go to law to uh, justify ourselves or to prevent him, the one who is suing, to prevent him from taking away uh, our goods, our money, our possessions? It would seem not, because what he is, what Jesus is saying, if this situation occurs, uh, whether or not the claim is just, that has nothing to do with it. The best thing you can do is to settle out of court, to use a common modern expression. Uh, 
if possible. Otherwise, if you don't, he may uh, take you to the cleaners, as the expression goes. He may take you into court, win his case, and take everything you've got. <clears throat> I think there's a thought here that our possessions are not our own. They are the Lord's. We have uh, many material blessings, particularly in this age, but they're not our own. We have no rights as such under the laws of God. Yes, uh, we have national laws, civil laws, which protect the individual. We have the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. But we're talking about the laws of God. And if we are blessed, as most of us are, with material goods and possessions, we must think of them as simply only in our trust. And if the Lord said, says, in effect, settle out of court, this is what we should do. Because on the laws of God, we have no rights. We have no rights under the laws of God and Christ. We only have privileges. And I think it's apropos to tell a little story, an anecdote of Abraham Lincoln. I think it fits in with what we're trying to say. A man approached him when he was president seeking a job, a federal job. And, of course, we know that particularly in those days, maybe today too, uh, there was a, a many political debts are paid by giving people jobs, whether they do any work or not. Now, President Lincoln told this man, I know you work for me for my election, but I haven't any jobs to, to give out. And the, the man kept importuning him, saying, you've got to give me a job. I've done this for you, and I need the job. Still, Lincoln said, uh, I'm sorry, I have no jobs. The man says, well, I have to live, don't I? And Lincoln said, not necessarily. Now, this is true of the disciple of Christ. We want to live. I'm speaking of our temporal life, but it's not essential. What is essential is that we so live our temporal life, whether it be short or long, so that we can ensure the everlasting life that God has promised to his servants. <clears throat> Verses 27 to 28. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. <clears throat> now, the principle that Jesus is projecting here is that the harboring of the thought, and in this case, lusting after a woman, the harboring of the thought is the same as the commission of the act. 
when I use the word harboring, I mean the one who lets an impure or sinful thought enter his mind and lets it remain there and harbors it, feeds it, develops it, nurtures it. I'm not speaking about impure or sinful thoughts uh, of all, uh, uh, in general. We, they impinge on our minds, I'm sure, every day. So it's a case of rejecting or accepting them. And Jesus is talking about those who accepts them and harbors them and does not reject the evil thought. He is just as guilty then of the thought as he is of the act itself. And in this case, which Jesus speaks, he is already an adulterer in mind and heart simply by letting that evil thought rest and continue uh, in his mind. The source of all good and all evil, good or evil, is in the mind or heart. We talked a little about that yesterday when we were discussing the pure in heart. And uh, you will recall a few moments ago we discussed the matter of anger. <clears throat> that anger was is a state of mind, uh, one which we must learn to uh, discipline, must uh, learn to control. And our bodies are but the servants of the mind or heart. Our bodies simply carry out the dictates of the mind and heart. Um, an idea, a thought is developed in the mind and it sends its message by the nervous system to the various members of the body, components, the body, arms, hands, feet, eyes, ears, so on, uh, to perform that which the mind dictates. I'd like to read a few verses from the 15th chapter of Matthew. the 18th to the 20th verses. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth him not. Uh, <clears throat> this is the idea we're trying to present, that the evil, the man's evil originates, the scripture says, in the heart, but as we discussed yesterday, heart and mind are synonymous terms as used in the scriptures. That's where evil originates. That's where it's nurtured. That's where it develops. And the actual act that is only following the dictates of the heart or mind. <clears throat> I think, too, that we must realize that Jesus here is stating a principle that has a wide application far beyond that of adultery, a principle that applies to all imaginations of evil in the heart or mind of men. As Solomon has said, for as a man thinketh, as a man thinketh 
in his heart. So is he. This is what makes the man, good or bad, are the thoughts and intents of his heart. If he thinks evil of any sort, he is evil. Whether it be the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, or the pride of life. And we know that lust of any sort, when it conceives, bringeth forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And uh, so this is something we should bear in mind at all times. The discipline or the control of our minds, because it's in our minds where all the trouble stops. Verse 29 and 30. If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that the whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. For it is profitable for thee that, thou, that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body shall be cast into hell. Well, <clears throat> this seems very unjust, does it not? Uh, the <clears throat> We've just been explaining that the source of evil is in the mind or heart, and now if evil is committed... Uh, cut off the hand uh, or the foot, uh, get rid of the eye, which actually committed the act when the fault lays back in the mind. Well, uh, that isn't what Jesus meant. <laughs> uh, again, he's speaking metaphorically. Uh, the members of the body are simply used uh, to symbolize the sin or evil that has originated in the mind. This is uh, what is called metonymy, when uh, a word having to do with the cause may be used to represent effect or vice versa. Now, in this case, the hands and the eyes and such are representative or symbolic of the desires and lusts that are conceived in the mind. This is all a part of the last few verses that we've been discussing. They're all tied together. Uh, first glance, that might not seem so, but it's really the continuation of one thought. <clears throat> and uh, it, interesting to note in, you know, in the margin uh, that instead of cause, instead of uh, offend thee, it reads cause thee to offend, cause thee to offend. Constantly, and maybe I'm repeating, constantly evil ideas and, and suggestions, as we said, impinge on the mind, appealing to our baser instincts. And this happened to Jesus himself in the wilderness, and he rejected them. Remember we mentioned that all, all of us have this problem of evil desires and lusts impinging on our mind, that the fault is not, that we can't prevent that. The fault is harboring those evil thoughts. They impinged on the mind of Jesus in the wilderness, but he rejected them. We have the account uh, with which you're all familiar. He rejected them. He thrust the idea from his mind. He refused those 
temptations refused a lodging for them in his mind. And so what Jesus is saying here, instead of cutting off your hands and feet and your eyes and so forth, what in essence what he's meaning, what he means is, cut off or out of your mind that which arouses the prurient instincts of the human being. And I think we can, I don't even know that Jesus infers it, but I think we can accept the fact <coughs> that this principle can be carried farther that we should cut ourselves off from, say, a job or a vacation which is incompatible with the servant of the Lord. We can apply it to our worldly associations, cut yourself off from the societies and the clubs uh, and such of this world. Cut yourself off from the magazines and the books and the TV programs that glorify sex and glorify violence and all other types of immorality. Verses 31 and 32. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, commit adultery. <clears throat> now this is really a continuation of the few verses, the last few verses that we've been studying. And it's particularly associated with verses 27 and 28, where Jesus warns those who look at a woman with lust commit adultery. It's all the same basic subject. And we're not going to spend too much time on this subject of divorce. Many hours could be, sent, could be spent profitably on the discussion, but this is not the place for it. In recent years, so much has been said on the subject and written on the matter that all students of the Bible should certainly be try to be just as well informed uh, as possible on the scriptural evidence. Not trust necessarily to what others may say, but to study the scriptures to see if those things you hear are true, such as the Bereans did when they heard the Apostle Paul speak. Much emphasis has been placed by those exponents or proponents of divorce with what we call the acceptive clause, which we just read, that clause, quote, except for fornication, unquote. And uh, it is too bad, I think, I'm expressing my own opinion, to place so much credence and emphasis and uh, authority on three words which are at best equivocal, ambiguous, and at worst, maybe an interpolation. We could discuss this uh, at length. As I said, that very clause, acceptive clause, as it's called, we could discuss it at length, but we're not going to. Uh, we have a similar account or directions from the master in 
Matthew 19, the verses 4 and 6, and time is getting very short. Uh, I'm not going to read those. I perhaps should have, but you can read them at your leisure. But here, Jesus refers to the original law concerning the marriage state. And even more to the point is what Jesus said to his disciples in the 10th chapter of Mark. And I think we will read that. 10th of Mark, the four, uh, 11th and 12th verses. Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Nothing, it would seem, could be plainer than this. And uh, in Matthew, I think it's the 19th chapter 2, he refers back to the original law, marriage law, which was given in Eden. This is the law of Christ. As we just read from, the, uh, from Mark, the 10th chapter. And it's expressed in absolute terms. To it, he gives no exceptions. He does not qualify it in any way. The wish or the desire to be rid of one, uh, uh, to be rid of one's mate, male or female, uh, should be cut off, as in the allegory of verses 29 and 30. The, as we mentioned then, it's the desire which leads to sin. It's the lust that leads to sin. Now, this desire to exchange or, get, or rather to get rid of one's mate may not be initially adulterous, but oftentimes it winds up there. And one more thought on this subject. It is pure sophistry to claim, as do some, that men must satisfy, and I'm speaking plainly, that men must satisfy their sexual appetites. As I say, it's pure sophistry. Jesus did not. The Apostle Paul did not. We've already mentioned Revelation, uh, Matthew, the 19th chapter, where Jesus speaks of this matter, and where he said, the 12th verse, there are three classes of eunuchs in the world those who are so born, those who are made eunuchs of men, and this is important, we want to emphasize it, those who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. According to my watch, it's exactly 10.30.